Welcome to another episode of Focused on Christ, where we are passionate about exalting Christ and equipping the church. I'm Mike Crump here with Pastor Nathan Smith, and on today's episode, we're looking at the vivid descriptions of Isaiah 53 in order to have a better understanding of the role of our suffering Messiah, namely Jesus. Now, Nathan, before we look at the text itself um, in Isaiah 53, what do we need to know about this section of Scripture, about Isaiah, or even just around 53 that kind of help us prepare for exactly what we're going to read? Prophet Isaiah, like Hosea and like uh, other prophets of their time period, many of them were contemporaries. They would have lived or spoke within similar time periods. Isaiah lived during the shadow of the decline of the northern kingdom of Israel, Mm -hmm. uh, right in the shadow of Assyria coming in uh, to to destroy the land. Uh, It is very possible that he and Hosea knew each other or uh, at least ministered in, in recent proximity to know of each other's ministry. Um, when we look at uh, Isaiah himself, he's given uh, quite vivid descriptions of both uh, the condemnation of Israel, mm-hmm. but he's also one of the most prolific commentators on the restoration of Israel mm. and talking about the Messiah. Some of the clearest messianic texts are found in the book of Isaiah. Really? Well, and that brings us to Isaiah 53, because in this we see a very very descriptive picture of Mm -hmm. the Messiah. Um, Now, leading up to it, we see him describing the people being in bondage, yet God promising deliverance. In Isaiah 51, 11, it says, And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. So we see that there's a ransom that's in play. There is rejoicing that will come out of this. Um, we see that God is planning salvation for his people. In uh, Isaiah 52, it says, The Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nation, and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. So there is going to be a display to the nations of a God who saves. Um, and so this is growing, this picture of a God who saves and a God who redeems. And then you have Isaiah 53. And wait, before you get to that? Yeah. So you're having this 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 climax yeah. this building to the point you get to the end of Isaiah 52, yeah. and you're waiting for the Rohirrim to ride over uh, and yes. destroy evil, a.k.a. Return of the King, <laughs> or the rebel fleet arriving <laughs> in Star Wars at this crescendo moment yeah. and this great war, and it's going to be an overcoming yeah. battle. You expect that, yeah. and then it takes this hard left turn. It really does. Restoration not via show of strength, yeah. but restoration via weakness. Yeah. Anyways, continue. No, that I mean, that's exactly it. You see this imagery building, and there's, in my mind, it almost, to go back to a, a past episode in Song of Solomon, mm-hmm. right, when the king arrives, right, and all of a sudden he comes on the scene, and all right, the wedding feast, things are about to happen, but that's not what we see. We, we see instead suffering. Mm-hmm. We see instead hardship, and we see... In Isaiah 52, at the very end of it, it says, As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance, and his form beyond that of children of mankind. And so we see this description forming of a person, a servant of the Lord, who is not of any beauty. There's Mm -hmm. nothing apparently noticeable about him. In fact, it's almost the opposite, where he's revolting in a way. And how does this 
relate to Israel's, I mean, you well, know, salvation. It, I mean, it says here to, in verse 1 of Isaiah 53, and, and whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? In other words, who's going to accomplish this? Mm-hmm. Who's going to bring about this salvation? And we're, we're kind of expecting the curtain to be pulled back and the armor and the grandeur and the beauty. And then it takes this, again, this hard left turn. Yeah. Who is this person? He's going to be insignificant, mm-hmm. living in a dry place. No one even desires to look at him. Uh, he is going to be acquainted with grief. He's going to be despised. He's going to be hated. Mm-hmm. People are going to turn their gaze away from him. He's not going to look like this national hero. He's going to look like someone despicable and hated by society. If you can imagine just kind of the, the flow here, it is just such an unexpected yeah. turn here in Isaiah 53. Yeah. So how would the people of Israel at this time Right, they're longing for this messianic character. Even then, um, because the kingdom is broken, things are falling apart, they're longing for this. How would they have received this? I mean, in my mind, I'm just trying to put my myself in that place. Um, But a Messiah who would not be recognizable and who would even suffer—that doesn't make sense to me. When we look at Isaiah and the prophet's ministry, we know that how would they people have received it back then? We know that many just simply ignored it. Yeah. They denied it. And other people were probably confused by it. The remnant faithful, there may have been a little bit of a, huh, I have no idea how God is going to do this. Mm. I don't know what he is going to accomplish. Yeah. Not everything was abundantly clear to even the prophets themselves. Yeah. Now, modern uh, Jewish scholars, yeah. so people who don't believe in Jesus as the Messiah, mm-hmm. but are still uh, Old Testament uh, Jews, yeah. they would interpret this in a variety of different ways. One of the ones that has gained a lot of traction is they see this as being picturing Israel as a nation, okay. not a specific messianic figure, but hey, look at our history. We've been hated. We've been despised. Mm. We've been and we've been chastised with wounds, and and it seems like the Lord is has chosen to lay it on us, uh, just immense suffering, and through us, he the nation of Israel, he's going to bring eventually the blessings of God, the Messiah, the kingdom of God, and it's through us that he is going to accomplish mm. guilt offering, sin offering, and so they view it as a very big picture to Israel. Okay. Now, that would make sense if the Messiah had never come, right? Yeah. And because the Jews are still looking for a Messiah, it is in line with Mm -hmm. their theological or eschatological understanding of how the end times are going to unfold. But we see this as fulfilled not simply in the nation of Israel, Mm. but in a very specific individual. Yeah. So when we see some of the actions, some of the attributes of this person, they they truly are— I mean, you can't help but think of Jesus if you know anything about right. him, um, that he would carry our sorrows, this man of sorrows, smitten by God and afflicted. So obviously suffering under even the hand of God, the wrath of God, pierced for our transgressions. That seems one-to-one, right, yeah. that he would be pierced for our transgressions. Um, this is speaking of Jesus. We know this. Um this seems to be speaking of what is often understood as substitutionary atonement, that there is a suffering that must happen so that there can be freedom given, deliverance given, salvation given. Is that 
Well, substitutionary atonement in lame, you know, just layman's terms, everyday terms, is someone who takes your place. Yeah. You know, substitute in your place, mm-hmm. atonement, paying something, paying a debt. And in Isaiah 53, the question is, who's going to accomplish the salvation spoken above in Isaiah 50, 51, 52? Yeah. It's going to be who? This insignificant, acquainted with grief, despised person. And what are they going to do, mm-hmm. this insignificant, despised person? They're going to carry sin. Mm. They're going to endure God's crushing. They're going to heal wounds, both physical and spiritual. They are going to satisfy justice and wrath. And it says, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Mm. So it's not the Lord is laying on him his own iniquity. He is, the God is going to lay on this individual, Jesus, the iniquity of everybody else. And so what substitutionary atonement is, is the idea that our sins are laid on him, that he takes our place. Instead of us having to bear our own sins, mm. he bears them for us. Yeah. And we say even in uh, verse 7, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before his shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Here we see pointing to the sacrificial lamb. Oh, definitely. I mean, if the first three verses are the who, Mm -hmm. and then verse 4 and verse 6 are the what, like this is who he is, this is what he's going to do, what you're getting to in verse 7 down to verse 9 is the how. Yeah. How is he going to do this? Well, he's going to be slaughtered like a lamb. Mm. And how is he going to be slaughtered like a lamb? And then it goes through those aspects. And. And I think it's just worth walking through, um, speaking of him being cut off out of the land of the living. I mean, so there is a death involved here. Um, Again, stricken for the transgressions of my people. So there is just a very clear line of the suffering he is going to endure is connected directly with the redemption of the people of Israel at this time when this is writing to so a lot of people, and I've heard the argument, um, especially by atheists and by those who wrestle with the Christian doctrine and things of that nature, is that substitutionary atonement, what we see in the sacrifice of Christ, if this truly is what's happening, that it's just divine child abuse. It's just God basically beating up on his son for, you know, for no reason. Because we do see that it was the will of the Lord, in verse 10, to crush him. Mm-hmm. That's a that's a hard thing to consider. That it was the will of God to crush and destroy, to sacrifice His Son as a father. That I can't imagine doing that. Obviously, you know, going back, words have power yeah. to put maybe an image that even the text itself doesn't demand yeah. into our minds. And Satan's really good at this. Mm-hmm. By asking questions or stating things in certain ways, it puts you on the defensive. So if someone says, and I've heard that argument, yeah. it seems like God is committing the abuse of his own child. Mm-hmm. Now, we know abuse is wholesale wrong. Yeah. like th- that, That's how we understand it. And so we're, we're actually inferring that God is doing something mm. evil. It's also the um, similar question, and I'm tangenting purposefully yeah, here, yeah. when the question is, how could a good and loving God allow da-da-da-da? Yes. The way that that question is set up infers that God is at odds between his character and his actions. Mm. You know, how could a good and loving God mm-hmm. do something evil? Well, the Bible never actually pictures God that way. Yeah. That God's actions are always consistent. God's actions are always consistent with his character. Mm-hmm. 
And so even though we may not misunderstand all the connection points, God is always good in his character and always good in his action. Mm. So even in that last question, how could a good and loving God allow A, B, and C, a right question is how should we understand God's goodness and character in light of his actions? Mm. And that rephrases it. How do we understand his goodness in light of this? So the same question we talk about, does he commit divine child abuse? Notice it says that he, this one who is being crushed, opened not his mouth. Mm. Now, that's of his own volition. Mm -hmm. This is not something, my father's doing this to me and I'm being abused. This is God's will to crush him. But the son standing up and saying, I will be crushed. Mm. This is a voluntary restraint and control, silence, innocence, and strength, Mm. saying, I am putting myself here under the will of my Father who will crush me in order to pay a debt for others. Yeah, and we see that in John 10, right? Jesus speaking, no one takes it from me, speaking of his life. But I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Excellent. So, yes, God has willed that his Son be crushed, but the Son, who is in step with the Father and united in purpose, has willfully and in great love and care stepped into that role to take on. Absolutely. And because Jesus the Son and God the Father are both God Mm. as members of the Trinity. Their very desires and affections are in sync. This is not a command from the Father to the Son that says, okay, Mm -hmm. this is divine agreement Mm. whereby the Father commends, the Son agrees, and the Spirit empowers. Mm. Complete harmony of purpose. Yeah. So as we look at this and we see this very harsh imagery, it is both beautiful and we understand it in its fullness because of Christ, because of what he has done in reflection on that. But what can this teach us about God's justice and his righteousness as we look at this and the necessity of a sacrifice? Because God is not going to do this even enter into this suffering if it's not necessary. Mm-hmm. There, there's something that is necessary in this. So what does this teach us about God's justice and righteousness in this act? God, who is holy, righteous, and, and good, mm-hmm. he is completely holy, without blemish, spot, sin, or transgression. He has an affection and desire to bless sinners, people, with his presence. Okay, That's mm-hmm. his desire. This is who he is. This is his desire. Yeah. He wants to do something. But his character cannot allow that desire to happen unless something is taken care of. Mm -hmm. Because his character cannot tolerate the presence of sin, sin has to be dealt with. Mm. Righteousness has to be given and wrath has to be satisfied. So for God's character to allow and affect his desire, which are in concert with each other, Mm -hmm. a sacrifice has to be made. If God's desire was not to give us his presence, then he would not give us a sacrifice. Mm. And he would still remain completely holy and righteous. But he cannot give a sinner access to his presence without a sacrifice, lest he deny his character, which he cannot do. I know I'm making a lot of verbal, like, roller coaster here aspects, but 
I'm trying to show that his character and his desires dictate mm. that there must be a sacrifice in very simple terms. God who is holy, only someone who is holy can be in the presence of God who is holy. Amen. We who are unholy can only be made holy if one stands on our behalf and we are hidden in him. Yes. And then we can enjoy the presence of God. Yes. And that's why the Apostle Paul says, you who are in Christ, mm -hmm. we are in Christ because he paid the debt and sacrifice of sin yeah. so that we could have the presence of God. Yeah. I think of that uh, we have been crucified with Christ, therefore we do no longer live, but we live in Christ. And uh, there's just that beauty of, hey, when he died, by faith we died and we are resurrected into newness of life into the presence of the Father for all eternity. And uh, this is this is a sacrifice. This is the means by which God accomplished that which he desired to do. And the practical aspects, people will ask and say, well, if God's so loving, why doesn't he just forgive everybody? He can't do that without denying his character. Mm. And God cannot deny himself or he will cease to be God. And he can't do that. So he, God never operates in con contradiction to his character. Yeah. The only way that his character can be satisfied is if sin is taken care of yeah. by God himself. Yeah. And that's through Christ. And we see that 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness mm. of God. So in the Lord's plan to make Christ the sacrificial lamb on our behalf, taking upon himself the sin that we have committed so that it would be destroyed upon the cross, thereby giving us Christ's righteousness. And so what does it mean to be made, as I read that, what does it mean made to become the righteousness of God? Because that's kind of an interesting verbiage. It's a glorious thought that we literally enter into and are clothed with and are made in the righteousness of God so that when God the Father sees us, he sees his own righteousness. He doesn't mm. see our righteousness. Yeah. He doesn't see uh, just simply a covering. He actually sees his own righteousness because of what Christ has done for us. Mm. Wesley wrote that hymn, and actually I have it right here, um, where he says, Find in Christ the way of peace, peace unspeakable unknown. By his pain he gives you ease, life by his expiring groan. Rise exalted by his fall, find in Christ you're all in mm. all. And it's in Christ that we find righteousness. It's in Christ that we find peace. And Isaiah 53 is this glorious Old Testament passage foreshadowing that messianic reality mm. fulfilled in Christ. Amen. And so now we look to Christ, and he is our salvation. He brings our redemption. Um, and I think uh, Romans 3, 22, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. So again, as you even spoke last week when you talked about Hosea and the means to gain this righteousness, the means to be made right with God through Christ is faith in what Jesus has done. And that is why understanding substitutionary atonement, what Jesus has done, is important. This isn't the secondary doctrine, right? This no. isn't one of those no. little things that we can disagree on. This is of primary importance, correct? It is of absolute primary importance because if there is no substitutionary atonement, then that means that I still have to stand in place before God 
bearing some of my own sin. Mm. But because Jesus said, it is finished. Mm. In other words, I stood fully in your place. It's finished. I paid it all. You no longer have to ever stand in the seat of judgment. I stood in judgment for you so you could only stand in my position Mm. of righteousness, blessing, and exaltation. Amen. Amen. Well, Nathan, thank you. We'll end on that one because that's a glorious thing to be reminded of. Uh, Thank you, and uh, thank you for joining us on today's episode. Next time, we'll take a break from the prophets and look at one of the good kings of Judah, King Josiah. How does an eight-year-old rule as king and not burn the place down? That was my first question as I thought about uh, Josiah. But we'll take a look at that and other things as we talk next week. Also, if you have questions about past episodes or something else you've read in the Bible, you can send us your questions at questions at focusedonchrist.com. You can also connect with us online on our social media platforms. Find all those at focusedonchrist.com.